Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome everyone to episode number 68 from Delving into Islam podcast. This is your host, Wa'il, and it is a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a privilege that I'm able to talk to you about the religion of Islam and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is allowing me to share my knowledge with you. Thank you so much for listening and participating and sending in all your questions and suggestions. And speaking of which, if you have any questions or suggestions, please email me at delvingintoislam at gmail.com. Again, delvingintoislam at gmail.com, and I will get back to you as soon as possible, inshallah. Now, this podcast is for anyone, whether you are remotely curious about the religion of Islam, or if you are thinking about becoming a Muslim, or if you just became a Muslim, or if you are already a Muslim who wants to learn more about Islam, this podcast is for you, inshallah. With that being said, let's get right into today's topic. And today's topic, we will continue talking about the Battle of Badr, you know, the first battle in Islamic history. And, you know, we stopped last time at this incredible, unbelievable scene between the two armies. You know, you have Satan on one side, you have the worst of mankind on one side, and you have, you know, uh, Prophet Muhammad Wasallam leading the Muslims and Angel Jibreel leading the angels, a thousand of the angels in an incredible, supernatural and real battle at the same time. You know, it's it's beyond this world, and of course, this battle is it's literally beyond this world, right? Uh, and this battle was called, or that day was called the Yawmul Furqan, the day of the Furqan, which is the day that separates between the truth and the falsehood. Um, so now the two armies started charging against each other, and they started, you know, they they, they clashed. And uh, the, the back in the day, it was more organized than when you see in the movies. So they were one versus one. It's not like a billion versus billion, right? It's a one versus one. And whenever you, you know, finish off the one that you're fighting, you move on to, you know, the next. Now, uh, um, uh, the battle started and then the Prophet was fighting alongside the companions, of course. And once in a while, he would take a break and go back and pray in his in his tent and then go back to the, uh, to the battle and so forth. And Ali, uh, his cousin, narrated that he was the most aggressive warrior. The Prophet ﷺ was the most aggressive warrior in the battle. He, you know, had so much anger for those who opposing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know. So, and then he would take a break, like you said, and go back. And that was narrated by multiple companions. Now, here's the interesting part. Many of the companions actually felt the presence of the angels. Now, we say that nobody saw them. Except the Prophet ﷺ, of course, he saw them all. But the companions actually narrated that there was something unnatural about this battle. One of the Muslims was pursuing a soldier from Quraysh. They were, you know, he was going after him. And then when he heard the voice say, go forth, Haizum. Literally, that Muslim, again, was pursuing uh, a pagan from Quraysh. And while he's pursuing him, he heard someone next to him saying, go forth, Haizum. Now, Haizum was the name of the angelic horse that one of the angels was riding. Now, he looked around and he didn't see anybody saying that. He, nobody was around him on a horse, right? Then the Muslim was about to, he cornered that, 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 that pagan, and he was about to, you know, strike him with his sword. But then he heard a sound, before he did, he heard the sound of a whip. And suddenly, the soldier from Quraysh, the, the pagan, was struck down. Before he, so again, let's, let's imagine what, what's happening here. The Muslim lifted his sword to that person from to, to throw it or because again there was a distance between both of them so to do something to, to to the pagan but then he heard a sound of a whip and then 
all of a sudden this pagan, this this enemy, just fell dead. And he was like, "What just happened? Where did this whip came from? Like, what, what did it? What did it? What did it come from?" He couldn't see anything. Literally, there was someone helping him, yelling at his horse to go forth. And literally, and that shows you, by the way, that angels have animals, like the jinn, right? We mentioned that before. Jinn have animals, and they could name their animals. Literally, Haizum was the name of a horse that is owned by an angel. This is something beyond our, of course, understanding in our world, but it's been recorded. Now, also, one of the situations is Al-Abbas. Remember Al-Abbas? We said that he is the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, and he was not supposed to be killed. He was on that list. He was captured by a Muslim. From the Ansar. Even though Al-Abbas was a very big guy, the guy from the Ansar was very scrawny. He was very, you know, very uh, small. Right? And then Al-Abbas, when he was captured, this is actually a funny moment, he looked at the Prophet and he said, this man did not capture me. Something else happened. Something unnatural happened. This little guy did not capture me. And then the guy from the Ansar said, no, I did. I did capture you. Then the Abbas looked around and he said, no, I was captured by someone else. I just can't find him here. Like the Abbas literally saw someone who, of course, the angel probably took a, uh, the form of a man, right? So you have two types of like support here. Angels could take the form of men, right? And fight. And angels could fight while you're not seeing them in their probably true angelic form. You just, again, the, like the, the situation we just mentioned. Then the Prophet ﷺ looked at... Uh, the guy from the Ansar and he smiled and he said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has aided you with a noble angel. So the Prophet confirmed that there was someone else who helped, aided you. See, aided you. The angels did not do the job of the Muslim. Remember, the guy, the first guy we talked, the first story, he lifted his sword and he was about to strike, but the angels did it for him. He did the work. The Muslim did the work, chased and fought, you know, the angel didn't say, oh, no, no, sit back. I'll, I'll take care of it. No. Same thing here. This guy from the Ansar was trying to capture Al-Abbas, and he got help from the angels. You know? Another companion said that he was pursuing, again, uh, a pagan from Quraysh. And before he attacked him, he saw the man from Quraysh fall dead. With a sword wound, which he did not know where it came from. Literally, he went back to the Prophet and I was like, there was nobody... Like struck him in front of me. But then the guy, the pagan fell. All of a sudden, he dropped dead. And there was a wound that I didn't even see where it, where it came from. I don't even understand. Like, where, like, how did it happen? You know? Also, another companion by the name of Okasha had a sword during the battle. And from the amount of fighting, that sword broke. So he went to the Prophet ﷺ and he said, Oh, Prophet of Allah, I need another sword. You know, I I don't have uh, enough. I don't have, like, my sword is broken and I need to fight. So the Prophet ﷺ gave him some twigs, you know, twigs, a little, little, like, sticks, twigs. And he gave it to him and he said, go fight with this. Now, Okasha could have been like, well, is this a joke? He could have easily said, is this, are, you, are you, oh, Prophet of Allah, are you, like, making fun of me? But look at the faith of, of, of the companions. Again, it shows. He took it and he's like, okay, O Prophet of Allah, I rely on Allah, and he went to fight. Then Okasha reports, look at this now. He went back to the battlefield, and as soon as he lifted the twigs, 
the twigs transformed into a sword. This is, we're talking about the level, this is unnatural, supernatural stuff happening. Again, and I was not joking in any way. If you guys thought like, oh, the, the miraculous things happen in Lord of the Rings or all these battles, you know, super sci-fi uh, fantasy battles that we read in books and, and stories and they make, this was real supernatural stuff happening in the real world reported by many people. Reported by Allah in the Quran, reported by the Prophet ﷺ, reported by companions who witnessed it. This is miraculous things happening. Literally, the twigs turned into a sword that both looked incredible and was incredibly sharp. It was, like Okasha says, it was the most incredible thing I've ever seen, the most incredible sword I've ever seen. And Okasha used the sword in this battle, and he literally, that, that sword could have been broken. It was not be like nobody could break the sword and he used it for the rest of his life in every single battle he participated in. He had the sword with him. He never changed swords. Can you imagine? It always was always sharp. He, he did not ever need to sharpen it. It was always sharp, right? And he kept that sword until the day he died. Some people actually, some people are reporting that he was buried with the sword because nobody else could. Because that was a blessing, that was a miracle that was given to only Okasha and Okasha only. So nobody could take that sword and you know use it later on. They just buried him with the sword. And it shows you. This shows you any anyway, relying on Allah is incredible. Okasha took the twigs and he's like, okay, I'm gonna go fight. Allah is not gonna, you know, uh, disappoint me. Allah is gonna make me victorious. Incredible. You know. So the battle was, you know, it kept on going. Uh, uh, and um, now let's let's talk about, okay, because I, I mentioned that I was going to say this in the last episode, but uh, we'll, we'll mention it now. That uh, now when when the Prophet ﷺ gave the list to the Muslims for certain people not to be killed, one of the companions felt something about this. And he started saying stuff like, oh, I'm going to, uh, you know, even if I find that Abbas, I'm going to kill him. Now, why did he say that? Why did this companion felt like this way? Because remember the three warriors who uh, uh, were involved in a duel before the battle? One of them was his father and one of them was his brother, the, that companion's brother. So because his father died early on in the battle, he felt some sort of way towards the uncle of the Prophet And then he didn't know the truth. He did not know that the Prophet you know, uh, did this because Allah revealed to him that Al-Abbas never wanted to fight. Unlike his own father, this companion's father, who wanted to kill Muslims. He started the duel, right? Um, so, you know, news spread that this companion said this. So, Umar ibn al-Khattab right away told the Prophet you know what? I'm just going to go, Umar style. He's like, I'm going to go and punish him. Now, the Prophet said, no, do not do that. He is a Muslim. He's one of us. Just go and talk to him. Like, convince him. So Umar al-Khattab went and rebuked that, that companion. said, what were you thinking? You don't even know the intention of the Prophet ﷺ. How dare you talk like this? And technically, the companion said that he uh, was, uh, he felt very guilty. He understood. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala kind of woke him up. He was angry about his father. You know, rightfully so. Even if his father was a pagan, he was just, you know, emotional. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually, you know, guided him immediately. 
and he felt so embarrassed from the Prophet even though uh, and there's a beautiful we we'll talk about that later but like even though he said what he said about the uncle of the Prophet who did not want to fight Muslims you have to remember that um, the Prophet completely forgave him it was not you know and it shows you again the wisdom of the Prophet and his forgiveness and his justice right and interestingly that companion felt so guilty for many years that he said the only way I'll know that Allah has forgiven me for what I said. Again, he's threatened to kill the uncle of the Prophet. Yes, he was a pagan at the time, but Allah gave him a pass because Allah knows that he was not trying to harm the Muslims. So that was a big deal to say, I'm going to kill him, even though the Prophet was, you know, asked not to touch him or to just bring him alive. So that was a big deal, a big deal. Uh, so he felt so guilty all of his even though the Prophet was totally normal with him and he was like consoling him when they were burying his father and all these things. But he said, if the only way to know that Allah is not mad at me, is Allah is pleased with me, is if I die as a martyr in a battle, fighting. And because he was truthful, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to show him that he was pleased with him, he made him die as a martyr. SubhanAllah, it's an incredible story. Just you know, for that companion to feel good that Allah is pleased with you. You made mistakes. We all make mistakes. But Allah gave you what you wanted. So he died as a martyr and that that's a blessing on its own, right? Now, a companion by the name of Abdul Rahman ibn Auf, he's a famous companion, was fighting next to the two six year, 16 years old. Remember Mu'adh and Mu'awwith, the people who stood up in the beginning from the duel from the Ansar. Right, the two little kids from the Ansar, and then you know the guy from Quraysh is like, "No, I'm not fighting you. I didn't come to fight you. Whatever." These are the two, sixteen-year-old, right? Uh, Muadh and Muawid, they're not they're not siblings. They were friends, right? Um, while they're fighting next to him, one of them tapped him. So I think it was Muadh who tapped him first, and he said, "Do you know what Abu Jahl looks like?" No, Abu Jahl said the worst enemy of the Prophet ﷺ, right? He had done so many horrible things against Muslims and against the Prophet So this kid is asking, do you know what he looks like? To Abdul Rahman uh, ibn Auf. So Abdul Rahman says, yes, I do. I'm from Quraysh. Yeah, why? So the guy from the Ansar said, the Mu'adh said, we heard that he disrespected our Prophet and I made an oath to Allah that if I see him in the battlefield, look at this incredible expression. My shadow will, over, will overlap his shadow until one of us is dead. Think about this. Basically, I will keep fighting him. My shadow will overlap his shadow. I'm going to stick to him, fighting him, until one of us is dead. So Abdul Rahman responded, Okay, when I see him, I'll let you know. <laughs> then as soon as he finishes, he goes back, they go back to fighting or whatever. And then, again, it's not all fighting. You know, they have they take breaks and maybe they're talking even during the fight, right? The other kid now, the other 16-year-old, the Mu'awith, he tabs Abdul Rahman and he asks him the same thing. Hey, do you know what Abu Jahl looks like? And Abdul Rahman is like, what's going on here? And it turns out both these kids have a competition who kills Abu Jahl first. Both these kids were competing with one another. Who is going to get to Abu Jahl first? Right? And again, it shows you a 16-year-old. The difference, the incredible difference between today and back then. 
Now, Abu Jahl, because he was the leader of the army of Quraysh, right? He was standing in some sort of like a safe location, surrounded by guards. One of them is actually Ikrimah. Ikrimah is the name of the son of Abu Jahl. Then Ikrimah was known to be a very strong uh, guy. And Abu Abdurrahman saw him from a distance. Abdurrahman is the companion who was talking to the two kids. He saw Abu Jahl, you know, standing with like some safety and whatever. So he tells him, hey, kids, that's the guy you're looking for right there. And they both bolt. They just run towards Abu Jahl. And here's the interesting part. Because they were both unknown to the people of Quraysh. And they were also little kids. Nobody took him seriously. Like nobody tried to stop them while they're heading towards, uh, um, towards what's his name? Towards Abu Jahl. Right? Nobody tried to stop them. They're not recognized by anyone. Now, when Mu'adh, the first kid, got a little closer... He felt like he's not going to reach out, like the guards will stop him. So what he does is he jumps, he, he quickly jumps so high up and he tries to strike Abu Jahl because again, he wants to pass the guards. So imagine this with me, right? He jumps up to drop and he, he wants, while he's dropping, to strike him with his sword. But because the jump, he made it a little bit early, he was not able to get the upper body of Abu Jahl. But he literally chopped off the left leg of Abu Jahl. He literally just cut it off with his sword. Again, he was trying to aim to strike him, to kill him. But then the jump was not high enough. So instead of him hitting the upper body of Abu Jahl, he hit the lower body. So he basically chopped off Abu Jahl's left leg. And Ikrimah, the son now, He's trying to, you know, uh, avenge his father's, you know, being attacked. So he literally cuts off the entire right arm of Mu'adh. That 16-year-old, Ikrama literally cut off his left, uh, his right arm entirely. And by the way, he lived, he, he survived the battle. And he lived one-armed until he died, a natural death, many years later. Because of that incident. Now, while... This is happening at the same time. Muawit, the second kid, the second kid from the Ansar, right? He also manages to hit Abu Jahl. Now everybody's busy with 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 Muawit, and then this kid comes in and he hits him, and it was a severe hit. Now we don't have the detail where it happened, which part of the body he hit, but you know it was obviously a severe hit. The detail will not mention. And then they both return. Now they managed to escape. Right to save one another, and they both managed to return to the Prophet and give him the news. They said they both, and like one of them said, "Oh, I killed Abu Jahl." The other one, of course, said, "Oh, I killed Abu Jahl." So the Prophet asked to see both their swords, and then after he saw the swords and looked at the blood on the swords, he said, "Both of you caused his death." Later on, Abu Jahl dies of his wounds, but it was mainly because of this. We'll get to the ending scene of Abu Jahl dying. But like later on, he dies, and it was mainly because of these two blows that he got, the, the, his leg and the other uh, severe uh, you know, wound. Now, uh, Muawid, the second guy, uh, later dies in the, in, in the same battle as a martyr. He dies as a shaheed. Not the guy who had, like I said, the, uh, the first guy who got his right arm uh, you know, got cut off. He lived as one armed for the rest of his life. But the second guy, the second 16-year-old, he actually dies later on in the same battle and dies as a martyr. 
Shaheed. Now, the Prophet asks the Muslims to find the body of Abu Jahl. So they all started searching, you know, until Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, ibn Mas'ud, the famous Qari, the famous reader of the Quran, remember? The the, 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 the one who the Prophet said that if you want to hear the Quran as if it was revealed, you hear it from Ibn Mas'ud, that's Ibn Mas'ud. He finds Abu Jahl, you know, crawling in a battlefield, no guards, nobody. So literally, uh, Ibn Mas'ud goes to him and he says, do you finally admit that Allah has disgraced you? So Abu Jahl says, look, until the last moment, he's very arrogant. He says, how am I being disgraced? I was being killed by my own people. The disgrace is yours, basically. You guys are, you're the one, who, even though he tried, he's the one who actually started the war and he's the one who tried to kill all the Muslims and he was the one trying to kill the Prophet but he's flipping it on them now, right? And this is, of course, the attitude of a coward. You know that. And then he, he asks, he asks Ibn Mas'ud, he says, oh, Ibn Mas'ud, who won the battle? And Ibn Mas'ud said, Allah and his messenger did. Then uh, Ibn Mas'ud uh, basically grabbed the sword of Abu Jahl, his own sword, and killed him, finished him off. Like Abu Jahl died with his own sword. But of course, again, and, and as mentioned, Ibn Mas'ud has some honor in killing Abu Jahl, but the honor, the total honor goes to the first two because he was going to die anyway. If, if, if Ibn Mas'ud didn't grab his sword and, you know, uh, hit uh, like strike him with it, he would have died anyway, right? Uh, but Ibn Saud still gets an honor of that, but not as the same as you know those who did, did did the hard work, right? While he was you know completely healthy and guarded with people. Then Ibn Masoud went to the Prophet and he said, "Yeah, Abu Jahl is dead, right?" And uh, uh, he took the Prophet to the to the location of the corpse. And when the Prophet saw his corpse, he said, This was the Pharaoh of this nation. By the way, the coat had the Fir'aun Ummah, that this Abu Jahl is the Pharaoh of this nation was mentioned here, only here. And I know I mentioned this many, many times before, but this is exactly when the Prophet called him the Pharaoh of this nation. It was at that spot, right? Now Another ending is for someone called Umayyah ibn Khalaf. Now, Umayyah ibn Khalaf is the one who tortured Bilal. Remember, Bilal is uh, is the first black Muslim. Bilal ibn Rabah, the one who kept saying, Ahadun Ahad, oh Allah is one, Allah is one, who was being tortured and he they would have the very hot, big rock put on his chest. Remember that Bilal, the one that they used to drag across. We had a whole episode also talking about Bilal. You know, they used to like, you know, drag him across Mecca. The, the owner was the one who caused this and remember when Abu Bakr came and he purchased the Bilal from that owner and, and there was like this 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 uh, iconic interaction that you know the owner uh, Umayyah ibn Khalaf said if you paid me less I would have given him to you and Abu Bakr smiles and says if you ask me for triple quadruple more I would have given it to you and Umayyah ibn Khalaf got so you know depressed because he could have gotten more uh, a lot and more money now uh uh uh, Umayyah ibn Khalif, the owner of Bilal, he f- he realized everybody's dead. We're, we're losing the battle. So he's looking for any help. So he knew someone, again, remember Abdurrahman ibn Auf, the guy who was fighting alongside the two teenagers, right? The two 16-year-olds, right? That companion. He knew uh, Umayyah ibn Khalif, the owner of Bilal, from before Islam. So they were some sort of friends, right? So he said, 
oh, 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 This is the owner of Bilal is asking Abdurrahman for help. Take me as a prisoner. Don't kill me. And I will give you as much as I can in terms of like wealth and whatever. So Abdurrahman, it's not, it's, it's not haram, it's halal, you know. He's not aiding him, he's just taking him, capturing him as a prisoner. So he takes him and he is about to send him to the camp of the Muslims. And then who sees him? Of course, Bilal. They're still on the battlefield, right? Bilal sees Abdurrahman ibn Auf holding his own previous or former owner, Umayyah. So Bilal stops Abdurrahman and says, where are you taking this guy, Umayyah? Where are you taking him? He said, he's a prisoner of war. I'm going to take him. And he, you know, will go and meet his punishment later. Then Bilal says, this one cannot live. He is the head of disbelief. That's what he mentions. Over my dead body that you take this man as a prisoner. Now, there's a Mexican standoff here. Bilal is preventing Abdul Rahman from taking Umayyah, his former owner, back to the camp as a prisoner. He says this guy has to die. Has to die here and now. So, Abdul Rahman refuses. He's like, no, he's a prisoner, you know, and there's some sort of business transaction. I'm not helping him. I'm just going to give him to the Muslims. And again, this was completely halal. It was 100% permitted, you know, that instead of killing you, you're going to give me whatever that we agreed on. It was a business, a halal business transaction. I'm not letting you go. I'm giving you as a prisoner. But Bilal refuses. Then there were a group of the Ansar, you know, they were standing around. So Bilal asks them and complains to them. This guy is Umayyah. He did this to me now. Bilal's story is very, no, we know it now, right? Imagine the Ansar back in the day, they heard about his stories and how horrible he was treated and how, you know, badly and, you know, he was tortured and all these things. So they uh, uh, start to go against Abdurrahman and they said, oh, Abdurrahman, just let him be. We, he has to die right now. This guy is evil. He's evil. And he was evil, right? He has to die, and then they started taunting him, and Abdurrahman couldn't stop them, and he was executed in the battlefield uh, because of what he did to Bilal and other Muslims uh, as well. Now, here's very something very interesting. When he died, when Umayyah died, he was the only pagan who was not buried. Because when he died, his body dropped on hot pebbles. Hot from the sun, of course. You know, it was the, the desert. And every time, later on, after his body was like, stayed there for a while, every time they try to lift his body up, his flesh would decompose, melts with that, with, on that, you know, on, on, on those pebbles. So they couldn't even lift him up. So they left his body, you know, to rot, and they wa- decided to cover it with more pebbles, because again, if they put sand on it, it's just, they decided to cover it with more pebbles on top of his body so they are able to technically bury him. This is exactly what he did to Bilal. Subhanallah. Look at the miracle of Allah and the justice of Allah. The vengeance of Allah for Bilal. This guy used to put hot stones on Bilal's chest. And he was buried in hot stones. The only, by the way, the only pagan, even Abu, Abu Jahl was not buried that way. Even Abu Jahl was not buried the same way. But this is Allah's ultimate, ultimate justice, Al-Qasas. This is Allah's justice. 
His body was rotten and hot pebbles like he did to Bilal. Another story is uh, Ubaidah ibn Jarrah. He's a companion. And he was one of those companions that his own father was a pagan from Quraysh and he hated him. And he hated the fact that he became a Muslim. So in the battlefield, Ubaidah's own father tried to kill him multiple times. Can you believe this? And Ubaidah was avoiding his father. He did not want to have any fight, any like, you know, any, any duel with his father. So every time he sees his father coming towards him, he would just go somewhere else. You know, he would avoid him. Until one time, his father surprised attacked him. He surprise attacked him. And Ubaidah was trying to defend himself and his father was going crazy on him until by mistake, he stabbed his father to def- you know, in defense of himself and his father died. Now, he felt so depressed that he killed his own father and also some people, some Muslims, again, the tribalism was still there, by the way, were started talking like, oh, he killed his own father. Oh my God, why did he do that? All these things, the whispers started spreading, right? And then look at this, subhanAllah. Look at the honor that Allah has given him. Allah revealed in the Quran, in the chapter of the Mudajala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed in the Quran, in the chapter of the Mujadala, لا تجد قوما يؤمنون بالله واليوم الآخر يوادون من حاد الله ورسوله ولو كانوا آباءهم أو أبناءهم أو إخوانهم أو عشيرتهم أولئك كتب في قلوبهم الإيمان وأيدهم بروح منه Let me explain what I just said. When people started whispering and talking about, oh, Ubaidah killed his own father, even though Ubaidah was completely depressed because of what he did, right? Allah reveals in the Quran, he says what? You do not find people who believe in Allah and the hereafter. Like people who believe in Allah and the hereafter. Who are friendly and close and supporting those who opposed Allah, those who opposed his messenger, those who hated Allah, those who hated his messenger, even if they those people were their own children, their own fathers, their own brothers, their own siblings, their own tribes. Allah is saying basically, if you are a believer, you would never support those people, even if they were own, your own family members. Because they were against Allah and his messenger. And then Allah gives an honor, an honor, to Ubaidah. He says what? Because this reveal, this verse was revealed because of the situation of Ubaidah. Those people who basically do not support their family members in the sake of Allah, Allah has written in their hearts belief and faith. And He will always support them. And He will admit them. And Allah will admit them into Jannah. Where they have houses, large houses, and they're gonna have their own rivers in Jannah. Look at this. Allah is pleased with them and they are pleased with Allah. Those are from the group of Allah, the companions of Allah, the Hizbullah, the group of Allah. What a great honor! Now, this is for Ubaidah. This was revealed because of Ubaidah, but this applies on any Muslim who is in that situation. You oppose your family, your own family. Do not support them if they are against Allah and His Messenger. That's basically the gist of the message. Allah 
Allah ends this verse with such a beautiful, beautiful phrase. He's saying, don't you see that the group of Allah, those who are supporting you know, the cause of Allah, are those who are the only winners in this life. They are the only winners. The true winners in this life and in the hereafter. You know? Now, eventually, the rest of the army of Mecca, they just went back. They flee back to uh, Mecca and they fled the battlefield. And here's an interesting part. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed a verse in the Quran uh, that said in the, the chapter of Qamar, verse number 45, he said, That group of people will be beaten and will be destroyed in a battlefield and they will give their backs, turn their backs, and flee the battlefield. Now, this verse was mentioned before the Battle of Badr, by the way. So, Umar ibn al-Khattab has a very interesting comment. He says, when this verse was revealed, we didn't know what Allah was talking about. We didn't know what Allah was talking about. Who is that group that will, you know, flood the battlefield? And why would they turn their back? Like, what is Allah? Who is Allah talking about? So Umar ibn al-Khattab says, on the day of Badr, I realized who Allah was talking about. It was talking about the people of Mecca. Now, it's very also interesting to say to, to mention that the Muslims captured around 70 prisoners from Quraysh. And around 15 Muslims were killed in a battle. Versus like many, many, many of the Quraysh. By the way, not that many of the people survived in Quraysh. Around like they say around 80 or something were killed from Quraysh. Not many were killed, but if you compare 15 uh, to 80, it's a big, big number. The Muslims also remained in the plains of Badr after the battle was over for three full days. Now, some might say, why did they stay? The battle was over, the, the army fl fled, right? Now, to number one, to make sure that to find all the bodies of the Muslims because they have to get that proper burial, like the Islamic burial, right? Now, let me get into a little bit of a tangent here. Washing the body and praying janazah are mandatory rituals upon every Muslim deceased. You have to wash their bodies in a certain way, and you have to pray janazah. Janazah is basically the the funeral rituals that we, it's a specific prayer for those who are deceased. Except for the martyrs. Those who die in a battlefield or die as a martyr, you do not wash their bodies. You leave them as with their wounds, right? And you do not pray janazah over them. Also, the, the martyrs are buried in their clothes because, you know, as Muslims, when we die, you, you have to actually, you know, you know, wash the bodies and, and then wrap them in like a white cloth. Now, the martyrs, they're left in their clothes that they died in, you know, and because on the day of judgment, the martyr will be resurrected with their own, his or her wounds smelling like musk. Can you imagine this? That's why you don't wash their bodies. Like this is just a little bit of a tangent between the martyr and the regular deceased Muslim. Now, so that's the first reason to find the bodies and then give, you know, proper burial. Burial not, we're not, they're not praying janazah on them. They're not washing them, just a proper burial to bury them, you know, uh, under the ground. Also, to, to make sure that the Quraysh won't launch a counterattack. Because again, a lot of people survived. So they might want to have, you know, some sort of like a, a vendetta and launch a counterattack against the Muslims. So they wanted to make sure that this would never happen. And mostly, the most, you know, like the, uh, the, the reason for them staying for three days is to declare 
who was the ultimate winner and who was the ultimate loser of this battle. The winner is staying in the battlefield. The loser is not there anymore. It's that clear. It's a clear message to everyone. Right? Now, Muslims gathered all the bodies of the pagans and they technically buried them in, in a well. They put them all in a well and, and shows you, by the way, they, bur- they put them in a well and they covered the well with sin. It's technically a burial, right? Uh, except, like we said, Umayyah, who was buried in, in hot pebbles and his body was rotten there. Uh, and it shows you that, look at this, they didn't want to let the bodies rot in the sun. They could have easily, they were trying to kill them. They could have left it on the battlefield and, you know, vultures eating them or, you know, let their body rot in the sun. Uh, of course, they didn't give them the same burial rituals as the Muslims, of course, but it's was showing you uh, that Muslims showed honor to their enemies. Showed honor to their enemies. Now, after the three days, the Muslims, uh, you know, were leaving the battlefield uh, and then our Prophet ﷺ passed by that well and uh, they technically uh, buried the... Okay, so we'll talk about what happened before then, but let, let, let's finish this. So they passed by the well where all the, you know, the, the people from Quraysh were buried and he began calling them one by one by their name. And he would ask them, have you found what Allah has promised to be true? He's telling them, have you found what Allah has promised to be true? Then Umar ibn al-Khattab asked the Prophet ﷺ and he said, O Prophet of Allah, how can you speak to the dead? They're dead. Like you're speaking to bodies with no souls. What's happening? Then our Prophet ﷺ responded and said, By Allah, you cannot hear me better than they do. The only difference is they cannot respond because it's too late. They're dead. So basically the Prophet is telling him, no, they can hear me as much as you can right now. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, actually one of the companions commented on this and said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought them back to life just to hear the words of the Prophet as a humiliation sign. Also, it's worthy to mention that if you guys read the chapter of the Anfal in the Quran, this chapter actually describes everything we are talking about in the Battle of Badr. Uh, the chapter of, of, of Anfal is technically about the Battle of Badr. It's that honorable. This battle was, it's that important that it had, there's a chapter that it was completely dedicated to that battle. Now, we said that they had around like 70 uh, prisoners of war and they didn't know what to do with them. So Abu Bakr suggested, he said, you know what? Let's just, let, let's let them go. You know, let them go since they are, you know, our families and kin. We don't want, you know, just let them go. Omar suggested to execute all of them, you know, so they know that because they tried to kill the Muslims, so they send a message. And this is, okay, okay, we know that Omar is a little bit harsh, but he's doing it because of his ultimate belief, right? Uh, and he doesn't do anything that's against the Islam. When he, you, know, you say execute them, this is a plausible reason. This is a prisoners of war. And we can execute them if we want. They tried. They literally just tried to kill us, like uh, you know, a few hours ago or a few days ago. Um, then um, the Prophet ﷺ says very a very interesting comparison. He says what? He says that Abu Bakr, Abu Bakr, is like uh, um, is like uh, Prophet Ibrahim and Prophet Isa, Jesus Christ. 
he compares him to that. He says, Abu Bakr says what? Prophet Ibrahim says what? If the, and this is in the Quran. If the disbelievers follow me, then they are of me. And if they do not follow me, you are the ultimate forgiver. This is what Abraham uh, or uh, Prophet Ibrahim والسلام, said about his own people who were pagans. Jesus Christ, what did he say to those who worshipped him as a god? Oh Allah, if you punish them, you, they are your slaves and servants. And if you forgive them, you are almighty and all wise. Now we know the verdict about this, that those who die upon shirk, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never forgives them. But it shows you that Jesus Christ is even, you know, showing mercy, right? To those who wronged Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by, you know, worshipping him as a god. So Abu Bakr is like this kind. He's always, you know, let's forgive them. He's the soft one. And then the Prophet ﷺ compares Umar to Nuh, Noah and Moses and Musa. He says what? Noah said what? Oh Lord, do not leave a single house of disbelievers on earth. Rabbi la tadhar ala al-ardi min al-kafirina dayyara in the chapter of Noah. Do not leave a single house of disbelievers on earth. And Moses says what? Oh Allah, make the heart of those who disbelieved in you even harder so they have no chance of salvation. They're both allowed. Moses and Noah were harsh, but they did it because they hated the idea of disbelief. They tried. Don't get me wrong. They tried their best. 950 years, Noah is preaching to his people. None of them was a believer. 950 years. It's incredible. Right? So they had enough. Oh Allah, don't leave anyone on this earth who is a disbeliever. Just take them all. So Umar resembled, you know, uh, Noah and Moses, and Abu Bakr resembled Abraham and Jesus. And the Prophet ﷺ gave his final verdict, which is he, he chose to go the Abu Bakr route to, you know, let them, let the prisoners go. Then the next day, Abu Bakr and Umar found the Prophet ﷺ crying next to a tree. Now, they didn't know what was going on. So, uh, so our Prophet ﷺ recited this verse, مَا كَانَ لِنَبِيٍ أَنْ يَكُونَ لَهُ أَسْرَ حَتَّى يُثْخِنُ فِي الْأَرْضِ تُرِيدُونَ عَرَضَ الدُّنْيَا وَاللَّهُ يُرِيدُ الْأَخِرَةِ وَاللَّهُ عَزِيزٌ حَكِيمٌ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to the Prophet ﷺ it is not befitting for a prophet to take prisoners until he, is, he establishes power on earth. Here's an interesting part. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is simply saying that Muslims are still weak. They're still in the beginning, right? And having prisoners of war, then releasing them, is good only when you are known to be powerful. Because when you are known to be powerful, and you let go of your prisoners, this is basically going to be interpreted as a, sh a show of mercy. You're showing mercy. But if you take prisoners of war, and release them while you're known to be still weak, you're still fresh, then this will be interpreted as being afraid of the enemy. This is a sign of weakness, not strength. So you only, basically bottom line is, you only forgive when you are powerful, which is a very logical and wise rule, actually, if you think about it. You only forgive when you are powerful. You don't forgive when you are weak because this will be interpreted as you're afraid. You're weak. Right? Also, some of the companions, some, very few of the companions, wanted 
this whole prisoners of war to be able to get the bounty for you know because you know when you release the prisoner you get the bounty for you know money uh, in exchange for their head basically so Allah saying to dunya you want wealth in this life now he's addressing those specific type of people and they're not doing again they want what what they want is halal these are the rules of war you know the rules of engagement there if i have a prisoner i'll give him to you or I'll, I'll, I'll let you go in exchange for some sort of wealth that you're going to give me. And some, so, you know, there's some sort of deal. This is 100% halal. But Allah saying that was not the time. You want wealth from this life. But Allah wants the hereafter for you. Allah wants has bigger plans for you. And of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, when he revealed that, the Prophet felt, you know, ashamed even though he didn't know. And Allah was, again, telling the Prophet, teaching him what to do next. And of course, that was never permitted until, you know, uh, Muslims were allowed when they became powerful to take prisoners and all these things. Uh, but nonetheless, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed the Muslims to release the prisoners. Allah allowed them. Just release them, no problem. You already, you know, gave your word, so that's fine. And it shows you that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when something wrong happens by anyone, you know, a mistake by the Prophet or the companions, Allah right away reveals a verse that corrects it. But He also allows things. If Allah forbids something from happening, it will be forbidden. For those who are doubting the Sunnah, the Hadith, or are doubting the actions of the Prophet or doubting that the Quran is authentic, Allah is there. Allah is there. يَجْعَلْ مِنْ بَيْنِ Allah is watching, even the Prophet even though he's the best of mankind, but Allah is watching. This is his message. Allah will never make anyone compromise the message. Right? Then uh, later on, you know, after the Muslims go back, Jibreel comes to the Prophet and he asks him, what would you guys say about uh, those who uh, fought in, uh, you know, in the battle of Badr? Those who participated from the Muslims. Jibreel is asking the Prophet. So the Prophet responded and he said, We think that they are the best of all Muslims. And they actually truly were. Anybody who, who participated in Badr had a very special status in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Jibreel responds and said, It is the same for the thousand angels who participated in Badr. They are the best of the angels, which shows you that even angels have ranks. We know that the ultimate, you know, uh, praised and high level. Uh, angel is angel Jibreel himself and those who participated were from the best of the angels you know so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala basically had blessed the angels who participated in Badr the same way he blessed the Muslims who you know participated in Badr uh, as well you know uh, so that was the mark, the ending of the battle. And uh, basically what happened after then is that now the people, the pagans who lived in Medina will have no choice. Because they thought the Muslims will die, by the way. The pagans in Medina, they thought the Muslims were going to die. They were so happy. Oh, they're meeting what? <laughs> All this, the big number from Quraysh? Ah, oh, they're dead. But they were shocked. Shocked. When they saw the Muslims coming back victorious, they were shocked. And they had no choice. Now, it's a clear message. Islam is there to stay. So they had no choice but to pretend to be Muslims to pretend to be Muslims. 
And when they pretended to be Muslims, they were called, because Allah knows what's in their hearts, right? Allah called them the munafiqeen or the munafiqoon, the hypocrites. There's a whole chapter in the Quran named after them because they were pretending to be Muslims, but from the inside they were trying to sabotage, you know, uh, Medina. They were trying to sabotage the Muslims and the uh, Muslim government. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of course, exposed them every single time, technically, you know? Um, and yeah, with that being said, thank you so much for listening. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.